Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 12. We continue making our way through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Would you join me in prayer before we study God's Word? Father, we bow this morning and ask God that you would speak powerfully by your word. And we live in a day just as in the day of Christ in which many demand signs and many are seeking all over God for wisdom. But God, we preach Christ crucified. Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Lord, the foolishness of you is wiser than men, and the weakness stronger than men. So God, we pray, God, that you be exalted today. We pray, God, that you would magnify Christ through this time. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, growing up, I was country when country wasn't cool. Some of you even get that reference, right? Any 90s country fans in here? All right, yeah, I'm slowly converting a couple of my kids to 90s country. It's playlist real country in my playlist uh, list of playlists and so one of the chart topping hits from the 90s I don't know if you remember this but it uh, was a song by Bill Ingvall and featuring Travis Tritt and all of his glorious mullet right it was called here's your sign you remember this now it was somewhat of a I guess maybe a little bit of an insulting uh, song right uh, is basically talking about those who missed the obvious. And he starts out the song by telling a, a story about when uh, he and his family were packing up to move and had all the boxes out in the moving truck. And neighbor walks up and goes, hey, y'all moving? And he says, uh, no, we just like to pack up our house every couple weeks to see how many boxes it takes. You know? And uh, he says, here's your sign, right? And so the whole point of the song, it's, it's a comedy routine is where it got, start, got started. The whole point of the song is talking about those who see something just blatantly obvious in front of them, but they deny it. They refuse to see it. They completely miss it. And sometimes it's just because they miss it, right? They just unintentionally miss it. They don't get it. It doesn't click. But then sometimes it's just because they refuse to see it. And our text today, that is the case. The Pharisees just refuse to see what is right in front of them. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Our, our Lord coming in Matthew 12 and all that we've, we've traveled through in Matthew 12, even coming out of Matthew 8, 9, 10, 11, leading up to this is the context that we need to kind of keep in mind. And I'll catch you up with that in a few moments if you haven't been with us. But the Lord comes to this interaction with the Pharisees and the Pharisees essentially come and they are demanding a sign and they perhaps more than likely have intentionally denied the signs in front of them, deny what they see. And so I want us just to look at kind of three things out of this text. The first is in verse 38. We need to consider the Pharisees' demand for a sign. The fact that they demand a sign. They come to him and they say in seemingly a respectful way, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And this is where we don't need to miss the, the larger context of the request because when we think about the entire context where this is coming, we see that it is a very insincere request. We, we look at the, the text as a whole because when we, if we just take verse 38 and we say, well, the, they come and they say, hey, will you give us a sign? And then all of a sudden we read Jesus say, no, I'm not giving you a sign. The sign of Jonah is enough. And you can read just that and go, well, wow, that was, that was kind of harsh of the Lord. I mean, why didn't he just give a sign? He certainly could have done that. Well, when we keep in mind the entire context, we learn a couple things, right? Well, first, we we learn that in the immediate context, we recall what Jesus had been doing, what he had been talking about with the Pharisees. What had he confronted in verses 33 to 37? You remember, we covered this last week. He deals with their heart. He confronts them at the condition of their heart. Remember, they had accused him of blasphemy. They had accused him of doing the, the works of Satan, right? And so right after they make that accusation, then in verses 33 to 37, Jesus says, listen, the reason you speak what you speak is because your words are a window to your heart. They're just revealing who you are, the true condition of your character and who you are. You need to examine your heart. And so the, the truth we learned last week is that our words reveal the condition of our heart. So how do they then respond? They have been confronted Jesus looked at them and said, you need to consider what you're saying and, and look at your heart. How do they respond? Well, they respond by going, oh, um, 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 will you show us a sign? They, they respond by deflecting the focus away from them and upon Jesus. They, they say, hey, hey, essentially they're saying, this is enough about us. <laughs> we, we, we want a sign from you. Let's talk about you. Have, have you ever done this? Kind of awkward situation or someone says something, kind of stepping on your toes, and the easiest way to reply is to reply about this over here, right? Or maybe you've had that done to you when you've kind of said something hard to someone or, or you ask someone something, and instead of just answering the question, they sidestep you and bring this into play, right? Why? Because they're saying, I don't, I don't want to talk about me. It's getting a little too personal, so let's change the focus. Let's change the subject. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. The second thing we see when we think about the context, when they come and they ask for a sign, we have to consider all the Pharisees and scribes have witnessed up to this point. 
I mean, just think about chapter 12 in the immediate chapter. Chapter 12, verse 9 to 14, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, right? He heals a man. They, they know this. In verses 22 and following, he cast out a demon from a man who was blind and mute, and the man is healed. They, they certainly had to have known all that happened in chapters 8 and 9. I mean, if you just flip through chapters 8 and 9, there's healing after healing, sign after sign, things that God's doing through Christ, through his, his anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah, all that he's doing. They surely knew about this. They knew word was spreading. The other gospel writers... They, they share similar things. In Mark 8, 11 to 12, immediately after Jesus feeds the 5,000, that's a, that's a pretty significant event, right? He feeds 5,000, and this is what happens. The Pharisees come and begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, parents, right? He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then the same thing, John 6, 30. Have a similar instance, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then John records he walks on water and he starts proclaiming he is the bread of life. This is what we read. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They want a sign. Jesus is doing these remarkable things. He's giving evidence left and right that he's the Messiah. I mean, everything. You, we, we talked about, remember when, uh, when John the Baptist sends the disciples to ask him the question, are you the one we've been awaiting? And what does he do? He refers back to all the, the signs that Isaiah spoke of that the Messiah would fulfill. And he says, tell John that all that, that Isaiah had prophesied of, this was happening. These signs are occurring. The people knew what was going on, and yet the Pharisees gather and they say, um, uh, uh, listen, can you just give us a sign? Can you show us who you are? Can you reveal that? And what more did they really need to see? What more evidence did they really need? What else would convince them? But that's, that's really the catch, isn't it? They weren't seeking to be convinced. They, they weren't genuinely coming to the Lord and genuinely wanting to learn about who he was. We'll learn more about this in Matthew 16. And as we go on through Matthew 16, 1 to 4, he makes clear what's going on when they ask for a sign. In, in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, this is what we'll read. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him, again, same thing that Mark recorded, to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven, and he answered them. When it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky's red. In the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky's red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He refers again to the same thing we have in our passage today. And it says there, he left them and departed. So they're asking for a sign. They're seeking for a sign. But it's not as sincere as perhaps it sounds. Now the second thing in verse 39 to 40 that we need to see this morning is Jesus' reply. Jesus' reply is what? The sign of Jonah is enough. The sign of Jonah is enough. 
So verse 39 to 40, he says, he answers them, an evil, same thing, an evil and adulterous generation. He's not mincing words. He's confronting them. A, a, an evil, a wicked generation, an adulterous generation, a generation that has been unfaithful to the Lord, that has not committed themselves to the Lord. They seek a sign, but no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah. And the sign, he says in verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah is enough. It's the same thing he says in 16, to 4. He points again to the sign of Jonah. Now, we would be wise just to make note as somewhat of a side note here. How is, jo- how is Jesus speaking of what happened in Jonah? Is, is Jesus referring to Jonah as some kind of quaint Bible school story that kind of sounds nice, but it's really just symbolic? No. He, he is quoting and referring back to what happened in Jonah as a historic event. This is significant. All the, all the attacks on things that happened in the Old Testament, all the attacks of, of the remarkable acts of the, war, of the Lord that skeptics would make or that those who are, are very critical and textual criticism and all these things of saying, you know what, um, that, that's probably not a supernatural act. It can be explained by this. It can be explained in this way. Here's a, a natural working of that. Here's how that would have happened. Here's, I mean, it would appear that way. Those are things that are attacks upon God. God is God. We don't fit him into a box. He does supernatural things because he is God and he is able to do those things. So we don't look and go, oh, well, well Jonah is just a nice story, but it was symbolic. It, it wasn't real. Jesus didn't do that. and We shouldn't either. Jesus looks back and refers to it as a historical event, and we should do well with that also. So the sign that he points to there in verse 40 is particularly one aspect of Jonah, right? The fact that, that Jonah experienced a certain death. He, he was all as good as dead. They cast him into the sea. He's swallowed by a great fish, and he's certainly to die, right? But what seemed to be the certain death of Jonah was actually the sovereign providence of God that displayed what? That salvation belongs to the Lord, those of you in here, some of you may not be familiar with Jonah. It may be something you've heard of, but you don't really know the story. I'm not going to go through the whole book, but Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. And the Lord called Jonah to take a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a, a city that was wicked. It was evil. And Jonah, as a Jew, despised the Ninevites. They, he despised them. He did not want to go. And so when we look at the book of Jonah, we see that when God calls and he commands, them to, commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, he flees to Tarshish. He turns and goes the opposite way, and it says he seeks to do that to get away from the presence of the Lord. So here's a, a prophet of the Lord who flees from the Lord, right? We, talked, we studied Jonah a couple years ago. We talked about that's just not a great idea. It's just not real wise there on Jonah. And so God hurls a great storm upon the sea when he gets in the ship and sets sail. He hurls a great storm upon the sea, and they ultimately look, and these pagan sailors look about, and they finally come to Jonah and figure out Jonah's the problem. And so they cast Jonah overboard, right? They're basically saying, you're done, you're out of here. And Jonah said, okay, throw me overboard. He was fine with it. He would rather die than to go where God commanded him. Well, they cast him over, 
And you probably, this is probably the story, the part of the story that most everybody in here knows, Christian or non-Christian. They cast him over and he's swallowed by a big fish. And he spends three days and three nights in the bottom of this fish. In Jonah chapter 2, we had this beautiful prayer that Jonah prays. It says he prays from the belly of the fish, this beautiful prayer. And at the end of that prayer, he's talking about God's deliverance. He's talking about God's salvation. The end of the prayer, the last statement Jonah makes is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And after that, we read in Jonah 2.10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. A beautiful scene in Scripture, I'm sure. Well, the rest of the story is at that point, God gives a second call to Jonah, right, and sends him to Nineveh again. He hadn't changed. He's like, Jonah, you're going to get the point some point at some time, right? You're, it's going to get through your thick skull. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. The, he preaches a message of repentance, and the Ninevites repent, right? They turn from their wicked ways, and then God relents. He relents from the wrath that he was going to pour out upon them. And then Jonah pouts about it. Jonah gets upset. He pouts. And you have an interaction with Jonah and God as God disciplines him for that. Jesus points specifically to the moment in which Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. We, we don't know. We covered this and we studied the book of Jonah. We don't know that there's any significance at all to that time period, three days and three nights, when Jonah lives and when that's written. There's no indication that it had any significant meaning, any symbolism at that point in time. But it's that point in time that we're reminded of what it is we read and what it is we study this morning. We're reading and studying the Word of God. That God wrote his word. It's not just the word of man. We're reminded that we serve a sovereign God who works out his purposes and does all things well. And so when Jonah experiences three days and three nights in the belly, Jonah's not, not sitting there going, wow, this is going to be a great illustration for what the Messiah is going to do. I'm, I'm, God's using me to really set up and help everybody understand what is going to, what's going to occur when Jesus dies. This is great. Oh, man, this is grand. Jonah's not thinking that. Jonah's thinking, get me out of here. This is terrible. I don't like Ninevites, but I don't like this either. Right? But then we come here, and Jesus says, there's no other sign needed for you, Pharisees. There's no other declaration needed than the sign of Jonah, because just like he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man is going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. God knows. Jonah didn't know, but God knew. Jonah didn't fully understand, but God had a plan. Jonah was a messenger to Nineveh, Nineveh. but Jonah was also a sign for the Messiah, a type of Christ. You see, Jonah's certain death and merciful deliverance by God was a sign that God had anointed him to preach his message to the Ninevites. And they saw that. They understood that. They heard, they knew when Jonah walks on the shore and he recounts all that's done, then they know, they repent. They don't need any further sign. They repent and they turn from their wickedness. You see, Jonah serves as a type 
for Christ. You remember our Advent study, right? And we sang the song, Jesus is True and Better. We talked about how Jesus is true and better. Uh, Adam and Isaac and Moses and David. We looked at those, how Jesus is the true and better, how each one of those Old Testament saints served as a type to prepare us, to help us better understand. And just by way of reminder, what we covered at that time is that a type is is, is something that is a pattern, an image, or example that, that helps us understand or helps us, for, or it foreshadows what is coming. It helps it to make sense. It prepares us to understand what Christ would do, who Christ was. And we, we talked about there's kind of two characteristics of a type. Do you remember this? That a, a type must correspond. You can't just pick anybody out in the Old Testament and go, oh, they're a type for Jesus. A type has to, there has to be correspondence. They have to agree and look and correspond in significant ways that either perhaps contrasts or compares to the antitype, to the one that would follow. But not only must they correspond, they also, there must be this kind of escalation, this increase in, the, in understanding that the, the Christ would improve upon the first or the type in a significant way. And so when we look at Jonah, we understand that Jonah is a type for Christ, that, that Christ is a true and better Jonah, that the sign of Jonah in 1239, that he would be uh, in the fish for three days and three nights, that Christ would greatly improve upon that. He would greatly improve upon that. Now, some of you may be thinking three days and three nights. How does that work out time frame wise? That, that is an idiom. Three days and three nights, the, an expression that would refer to, in, in those times, it would just refer to a part or in general, maybe a, a part of a day. It would be equivalent to me saying, man, I, I spent the day in Louisville on Tuesday. Well, you're not thinking, wow, Todd was in Louisville for 24 hours. That's remarkable, right? You just know that me saying that means that the greater part of my day was in Louisville. The same thing. Here, three days and three nights is an idiom that it could have been parts of three days. It could have been... All of them, in just saying that, we understand the situation of Jonah, and we understand the crucifixion and the death and burial of Christ and how that works out. When we read of Jonah being three days and three nights in the fish, what did he say at the end of his prayer? Do you remember? I read it to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Jesus is the true and better. When Jesus dies on the cross and is buried, he doesn't just declare salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of salvation. He is the one who accomplished it. He is salvation. Salvation is in Christ. Jesus was the true and better Jonah who not only rose from the pit of death to declare salvation, but to actually win salvation and accomplish salvation for his own. That is the beauty of who Jesus is. So through Jonah, we're better prepared to understand that it's through certain death that God would deliver and save. And we join with Jonah today, right? Why do we lift high the name of Christ? Because we join with Jonah to declare salvation belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. Because salvation belongs to Him. 
Now, this interaction in Matthew 12 between the Pharisees and Christ is important for our day. It's important particularly for those who perhaps are sitting here today or perhaps those who you are friends with or perhaps those in your family who are skeptical. Those who would say, I, I, I want a sign. I, I've, heard, I've heard this. Like literally sitting across the table from someone and them saying, you know, I might trust Jesus if he would just do this. They're demanding a sign. They want some sort of sign if he would just show up today. If he would just come today. That's all I'd want. I just want to see him. I've seen that. What I've learned in talking to people is this, is that typically, just like with the Pharisees, a demand for a sign is more often than not coming from one, not coming from one who is really wanting that. But more often than not, it's coming from one who's already made up their mind. They've already resolved to not be convinced. And they're just saying to deflect, show me a sign. Show me this. Show me that. My question is this, is how prideful is it to demand that all that God has done, all that Jesus did, occur in my day, in my location, in my life? I mean, how egocentric is that? That all that had to occur, if I'm really going to believe it, it has to recur, uh, occur right here, right now, for me. That's pretty prideful. We don't operate like that in any area of our lives. We don't go, you know what, I'm not going to believe any of these significant events in history because I wasn't there. I, you know what, I don't even believe that happened. In order, If you're going to convince me that that happened, it would have to happen in my lifetime. It would have to happen where I see it with my own eyes. We don't operate that way, do we? But yet, the skeptic would stand and say, I want a sign right here, right now. I want my own sign. Just like the Pharisees, we want a sign for ourselves. One theologian stated, the demand for a sign is the end of faith. When one says, I demand a sign, there's no faith involved in that. There's no faith involved in that. We, we may want to eliminate the need to exercise faith, but the problem is, is that faith is the means by which God has established for salvation. It will always come down to faith. But if, if you're a skeptic here today, don't be deceived. It's not as though the Christians are people of faith and you're not. You see, your, your worldview begins with faith as well. You may not know it. You may try to deny it. But it begins with faith as well. Because everything you're operating on, if you're operating with an evolutionary worldview, a, a background, a foundation, then you're operating on faith as well. You're operating on theories, the theories of man they would put forward that we cannot empirically test. And we never will be able to do that. So we're all people of faith. That's the bottom line. We're all people of faith. It's always going to come down to faith. The, the question is, who or what are you willing to put faith in? You're putting faith in something or someone. So who are you placing your faith in? God has been very clear that it's by faith you're saved. 
It's by faith. And this is a gift from God that no man should boast. It's not by works. It's not by works. But it is by God's grace through faith that we're saved. The righteousness that, that brings salvation is according to faith in Christ. Where is your faith? Is your faith in the ideas and philosophies and worldviews of man? Is your faith in the truth, the message, the word of God? Where's your faith? See, one of those changes almost daily. The philosophy of man, the ideas of man, what they would say, this is what you should believe, that changes constantly, constantly, constantly. If you don't believe that, you should talk to someone in here who has a lighter color hair than you. That's the blessing of having people in here who are older. They can look at you guys who are younger, who feel like you know it all because you've read some books. And these guys in here that are older can say, listen, I read those books too. And then I read more and more. And I saw how philosophy just changed and changed and changed. The answers change and change and change and change. And if you base your faith in that, you are constantly going to be shifting and changing and changing. The Word of God endures forever. The Word of God has not changed. It will not change. Because our God does not change. He is ever true. And so we can trust that. We can count on that. Our faith is in God. Our hope is in God. It will not disappoint. But as Solomon wrote in Proverbs eleven seven, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. You see, you can be an unbeliever and place your hope in a lot of things. But those things will die when you die. And that hope will perish when you perish. If your hope and your faith is in Jesus Christ, it endures because He endures. And He has conquered death. He has risen victorious over the grave. So where are you going to place your faith? Where are you going to place your hope? You see, skeptic, the evidence before you of the life and the miracles, the teachings of Jesus is substantial. It's, it's trustworthy. I mean, if you just set aside all of it and only look at the resurrection, that alone has been attacked time and time again, and it cannot be proven wrong. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. And it demands that you consider it it demands that you consider christ it demands you look and consider your life where your faith and your hope lies and it demands you ask yourself a question what are the implications what are the implications of this what are the implications of the word of god the, the message of the gospel and what's my response to him see god has done a great work 
to salvation. And he calls us to respond. The call is repent and believe. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. That's the call that you have to consider. The third point in this passage that we need to consider this morning is this whole idea of Jesus being the better prophet, priest, and king. What Pastor Scott mentioned in our time of of singing and praise. Verses 41 to 42, we we read the men of Nineveh. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, what's he say? Something greater than Jonah is here. And then he says the, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom from Solomon. And behold, something greater is here. Something greater than Solomon's here. Jesus says you need to understand what is before you. The sign of Jonah was enough for the Ninevites to repent. The the penitent Ninevites stand in judgment now over a generation who had the sign of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the grave. That we would look and we would see all the evidence. We would see the testimony. We would see and hear eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection of Christ. And and we might look and go, "Mm, no. Uh, give me a sign today. I, I want a sign. Like, show me as I drive home, show me some kind of really nice sign. Maybe just dry up a spot in my yard in all the rain today. It'd be great. Show me a sign. If you show me that, then I'll believe. And Jesus says, brother, <laughs> the Ninevites are going to stand in judgment over that. The Son of God is true. He is the only living God. He is the Word made flesh. And the gospel is good news. It's good news. The sign of Jonah declares that because it prepared us to understand the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, the Queen of Sheba, everybody says the Queen of the South, verse 42, Queen of the South refers to the Queen of Sheba. You can read that later. It's from 1 Kings 10, verse 1 through 13. It goes on through the chapter, but the first 13 verses really help you to see what's going on there. But the Queen of Sheba comes, and, and she comes because she had heard all of these tales about Solomon. And so she hears, and she makes this great journey to see. She wants to see for her own eyes. She goes to him. And when she sees uh, Solomon, when she hears from Solomon, her response is twofold. She's amazed. She's blown away by how amazing Solomon is that all that she had been told was true. But then her second response is adoration. She adores Solomon because of the wisdom and the justice and the righteousness that was displayed. She is amazed and she adores him and she just bestows all that she has upon him. She she essentially worships to give all of this stuff unto him. Yet Christ proclaims something greater than And Solomon is here. And we know a lot about Solomon, don't we? We know a lot about him. Solomon's wisdom. You remember Solomon's wisdom? It was was given to him, wasn't it? It It was his prayer. God, give me wisdom. And God bestows wisdom upon him that's greater than wisdom upon anyone who ever has had wisdom. But guess what? Jesus' wisdom is perfect, whereas Solomon's wasn't perfect. And Jesus' wisdom is not given to him. It's inherent to who he is. It's who he is as the Son of God. Solomon's wisdom was dependent on God. Uh, 
Jesus is God. Solomon's wisdom was, was finite. It was limited. It had restrictions. Jesus' wisdom is unending because he is unending. He knows all things. He is ever wise. He is omniscient. Solomon's wisdom was tainted by sin. We know that, don't we? We shake our heads and we go, Solomon had all that wisdom, yet he fell into just grievous sin. Why? Well, because Solomon's wisdom was tainted by sin. Well, guess what? Jesus' wisdom is perfect, holy wisdom. There is no imperfection. There is no sin in Christ. His wisdom is perfect. So do you look for perfect wisdom? Then look no further than Jesus. Do you look for true, real justice, the cry of our day? Well, look no further than Christ. Do you look for genuine righteousness? Look no further than Jesus. He is the true and better Solomon. And we would do well to learn from the Ninevites. We would do well to learn from the Queen of Sheba that we would do well to look and behold the life, the teaching, the works of Jesus and repent of our sins. That we would do well to see who Christ is and what He did and be amazed at that and just adore Him and worship. That we would gather and want to exalt Him. That we would see and behold Him and trust Him with our very lives. Put our faith in Him. Now, before we close, I just want to—I want you to see the beauty of Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, we see that Jesus is the true and better priest, prophet, and king. It's the, the three offices that Christ has perfectly fulfilled. So in, in chapter 12, verse 6, we talked about this when we came through there, so we won't review it. But in 12 or 6, we read something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the greater high priest. He is the better priest. In verse 41, as you know, today he's the greater Jonah is here. He's the better prophet. In verse 42, he's the greater Solomon. He is the better king. He is the great high priest, the great prophet, the great king. As the great high priest, he is the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, was tempted just as we are, yet he never sinned. And he, as the great high priest, now intercedes on our behalf. He is a great high priest, a merciful high priest. Hebrews describes him as one who has paid for the sins of his people, not by the shedding of a lamb, but by the shedding of his own blood as the Lamb of God. And so, Christian, we can find great comfort in knowing that Jesus understands our battle with sin. He understands the weight, and the, tempta- or, uh, the weight of temptation. But we are comforted in the fact that he has paid the price to redeem us from sin and death. We find great comfort in that. We have no further sacrifice to make. There's no longer an altar to draw near to. Christ has done it. It is finished. When he says that on the cross, it's finished, it's finished. He meant it. It's finished. But then Christ, the the great prophet, he's the one who who revealed truth and grace to his people. He's the one that, that not only declared the word of God, he was the very word of God made flesh. He was the final prophet through whom God spoke to us. He is the ultimate and final revelation of the Father. He not only declared the good news, he is the good news. 
That is who he is. So Christian, we find comfort again, knowing that the revelation of God is complete. It's complete. He is the good news we need day by day by day. Not just when we come to Christ in salvation, but day by day as we walk in Christ. He is the good news that we walk in Him. He strengthens us. He sustains us. He empowers us. We need no further revelation. We need no further message to help us better understand God and the gospel than what He has given us and who He is. He is the great King. He's the great King who is exalted above all other kings who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who rules with sovereign power and wisdom at the right hand of the Father. At the coming of Christ, what does he say? He comes on the scene when John foretells of him and prepares the way, and then when Jesus comes and he's preaching, what does he say? The kingdom of heaven is upon you. It is here. Why? Because the king was there. At the coming of Christ, the kingdom of heaven was among us. And so we, as Christians, we find great comfort in knowing that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And it cannot be torn away by anyone or anything in this world. There is no situation of life that is going to remove us from our citizenship of heaven. Because the king reigns and he is sovereign. We belong to the king of kings as God's adopted children. And as such... Paul beautifully writes this in Romans 8. We are co-heirs with Christ. That is a great comfort to us. Great comfort. Christ, the better prophet, priest, and king. Oh, the blessings that are in him. The rich, rich blessings. And the greatest of which is Christ himself. Don't miss that. Don't miss that, Christian. Don't miss it. Skeptics, I would just close by asking, are you pretending to want a sign? Are you you saying, well, if, if God would just do this, then I would believe. But yet, all the while, you've already resolved that you're not going to believe. You're saying, give me a sign, but I'm just saying that. What more can he say than he has already said? What, what more can he do than he has already done? Would you be so selfish to say all that he's done, all that he's said, I'm not going to believe it unless it is right here, right now, to me. Consider that. Consider it. Are you refusing to accept what's all around you? Are you just denying it? Evidence lies all around you, before you, behind you, around you, to your sides. It's everywhere. Are you just refusing to accept it? Do do you refuse to accept the testimony of Scripture, the most verified historic document in all of history? Are you just going to turn a blind eye to that and go, ah, that's insignificant, I'm not going to believe that? Do you refuse to accept the evidence of the resurrection? You say, I'm not going to trust the resurrection. It's the event that changed the world, changed countless lives 
throughout history, you're just going to refuse to even consider it? Do you refuse to accept the testimony of believers throughout the ages of God's grace and power? People from every nation, from every socioeconomic standing, across the world, across all times, in every situation, male, female, boy, teenager, adult, senior adult, would you look them in the face and refuse to accept that testimony? Would you refuse to accept the overwhelming amount of fulfilled prophecy that was fulfilled in the very life and death of Jesus Christ alone? Would you look at that and go, I don't believe it. I'm not going to. I want a sign. Give me a sign. Would you do that? Would you refuse to accept the miracles that Christ did? The miracles that even his opponents didn't reject? You read through and they go, oh, Jesus didn't really do those things. Somebody else did it. It was trickery. Would you then reject them? Even though non-Christian contemporaries wrote about them and attested to them? Skeptic, don't miss the obvious. It's right in front of you. Don't miss it. Don't keep denying it. Don't keep demanding for a sign. Repent. Repent. And trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. Respond to all he's done. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we bow and we praise you for all that you are and all that you've done. You are a remarkable and amazing and incredible and astonishing and awesome God. And we worship you. God, I thank you for all you've done. I thank you for the evidence that you've given us in creation of your existence. Of your divine attributes, your, your power, God, that we see displayed every day. Every day, just in the last couple of weeks, just the power of wind to halt our lives in many ways. But God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the life of Christ, the, the coming of Christ to reveal to us salvation. We thank you for your many works throughout Scripture. We thank you for your many works throughout history, your many works among the people in this very room. And so God, we pray that as believers, God, you would increase our love and our affections for you that you would increase our adoration, our amazement of you, that we would worship, just worship. In the midst of the ups and downs in life, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the disappointments, I think we would worship. God, I pray for friends who are skeptical and who are like the Pharisees, they're wanting a sign. God, would you please work in their lives? that they would behold you, that they would understand their need for you and the depth of your great love. 
God, that they would respond in repentance and faith, trusting you for salvation, Lord Jesus. Would you please, please do that work today? We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the true and better prophet, priest, and king. Amen.